Well, today is the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church, and ministries like Open Doors that we just heard from and Voice of the Martyrs, these ministries that are dedicated to um, helping and serving uh, our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world who are facing persecution. Um, They encourage churches like ours to set aside the first Sunday or first or second Sunday in November to devote to prayer and uh, to lift up uh, the persecuted church. And so we had a special equipping hour earlier this morning, and I know that a number of you were here, had the opportunity to pray for the persecuted church in a small group format. And so I thought it'd be appropriate if I was to lead us now in a time of corporate prayer on behalf of the persecuted church. And so would you bow your heads with me? As I pray uh, for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Gracious God, we exalt you right now as the most high one who reigns supreme over all things and who can do all things. And we praise you and we thank you for your wisdom and your power in designing and building the church of Jesus Christ with people from every tribe, tongue, and people and nation. And we know that ever since the church was birthed at Pentecost, that Satan has done everything in his power to destroy it through persecution. But we also know that instead of destroying the church, persecution has caused the church to grow even more. And so this morning, it is our joy to cry out to you on behalf of our brothers and sisters in Christ all around the world who are experiencing suffering and persecution for the name of Christ. You've told us in your word that we should remember those who are in prison, who are ill-treated, since we ourselves are part of the same body. And when one part of the, one part of the body of Christ suffers, we all suffer. And so we ask that you would be gracious to our fellow members of the body of Christ who are living under Islamic and communist oppression. We pray that you would hide them under the shadow of your wings so that they would be kept safe from those who seek to trample and destroy them. We pray that you pour out your loving kindness upon them, that they might find refuge in you. Give them the confidence that nothing can ever separate them from you and your love. Rescue them from their captors and release them from prison. Return them to their families. Sustain their spouses and children while they are apart. Comfort them in their distress, ease their pain, encourage their souls, strengthen strengthen them, Lord, both physically and spiritually. We pray that you would grant them a steadfast heart and a joyful and thankful spirit that allows them to be able to sing praises in the midst of their suffering. We pray that you would speak your truth through them in such a powerful way that it pierces the hearts of those who persecute them. Use their testimony to convict their persecutors of their sin and show them the incredible value of Jesus Christ by how much Christians are willing to suffer to to know him and to make him known to others. And Lord, we admit that we can't even begin to relate to these great saints of the faith who bravely choose death over denial who choose faith over fear, 
who choose to be a witness rather than to walk away. They truly qualify as, as those of whom the world is not worthy. And, and so we confess that even though we claim Christ as our Lord and Savior, we feel unworthy to be associated with such extreme devotion because we've never had to suffer and sacrifice the way they do to follow you. And so we only pray that if our time should come, that we will have the courage to follow their example and stand fast and true for Christ and show the world that he is worth more than life itself. We pray all these things so that your glory will be known throughout the earth through your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, for those of you that maybe aren't as familiar with the persecuted church, we want to provide you some resources where you could educate yourself, familiarize yourself, and uh, we have these uh, I Commit to Pray cards uh, that should be on the chairs around you, just a few uh, chairs away. You should all be able to reach out and grab one of these little cards, and if you are not uh, someone who signed up for uh, the Voice of the Martyrs uh, monthly magazine... Uh, this is how you do that. You can either uh, just uh, fill this out and mail it off, or you can even go online and sign up. But uh, this is something that I would encourage all of you to to get: is that uh, weekly mag or sorry, monthly magazine. Uh, we have some examples of these available on the back tables. This is the 50th uh, anniversary edition here, and what's unique about this one is it has actually has a map uh, in the middle that you can tear out and uh, put up somewhere in your home. And it just shows, uh, it's a map of the world and where uh, persecution is the greatest, what countries, what regions of the world. And so it's just a very helpful visual. So if you've never seen this before, uh, would encourage you to grab a copy on your way out today. And again, get signed up to receive this on a monthly basis. It's just a great reminder uh, to kind of keep it in front of us, to remember to be praying uh, about persecution all the time because it's happening all the time. We also uh, provided some of these uh, little DVDs, which is the story of the life of Christ, which was, was produced by the Voice of the Martyrs. And so this would be something maybe that your children would enjoy watching, um, a, a challenging uh, message about the gospel and Jesus Christ. So you can grab these and, and watch these as well. Um, they've also, as obviously as technology has uh, uh, progressed, uh, these ministries now have um, apps so if that's uh, something that is easier for you to kind of keep up on things, you could download, the, I think uh, Open Doors has a, an app that you can download that keeps you updated, and we all get updated on all sorts of things on our phones, right? Why not get updated about the persecuted church? Um, might be a good excuse to cancel some of those other updates that you get that are meaningless, right, and pointless, um, useless information, and, and get something that matters uh, on your phone. Uh, they also reference the world watch list, and that's something that if you go on opendoors.org, uh, I believe it is, uh, you can get them to send you, you can either download it, or they can actually send you a hard copy, and it's a very well uh, put together booklet that has the top 50 countries where persecution is the greatest and most intense, and that's really a, a prayer guide that you can use, uh, kind of keep it there with your Bible, your devotional things. But I would encourage you to consider getting that uh, world watch list and uh, kind of keep those, um, those um, countries on the forefront of your mind and heart as you pray um, on a regular basis for the persecuted church. And that's what they say. 
they inter- they've inter- been interviewing persecuted believers for years now. We've been doing this for 20 plus years, ever since we started the church. And they still are saying the same thing. If there's anything they want from us, any way we can help them serve them uh, is to please, please pray for us. That's what they say. And so uh, if that's not uh, in your normal uh, devotional routine uh, to include uh, the, the persecuted church, we want to in, in, uh, encourage you to include that in your prayer list, in your times of prayer before the Lord. Uh, it's one of the things we highlight on our missionary wall uh, over there by the Resource Center. We want to just keep that in front of us. And this Sunday is an opportunity to do that. And as you know, customarily uh, on IDOP Sunday, I take a break from wherever we're uh, studying, whatever book we're in, and I preach a, a separate message on persecution and suffering. Well, we're studying First Peter right now, and one of the things we've been learning is that uh, one of the themes of First Peter is suffering and persecution. And, and the word suffer and, and suffering are used um, more than any other words in this letter, and uh, some have concluded by that that this is the theme of the letter, standing firm in the midst of, of suffering. And if you're there in First Peter, uh, look at chapter 4, verse 12, because I think this is the most extensive section on suffering uh, in the letter, and I'm not going to preach from it this morning because I want to save that for when we get there uh, as we sequentially go verse by verse through this letter, but I thought it would be good for us to read it this morning, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. Peter writes, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exultation. If you're reviled for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. Now, this was not just some pious platitude from the pen of the Apostle Peter, he was writing from personal experience. And this is exactly how he and the rest of the apostles responded when they were arrested and beaten for preaching the gospel in Jerusalem. Turn back to the book of Acts. And this is where we're going to camp out this morning for a few minutes. Acts chapter 5. And notice verse 40 and 41. This is what Dr. Luke recorded about this incident when, well, one of several incidences when the disciples were arrested for preaching the gospel. This is Acts chapter 5, verse 40. They took his advice, this is Gamaliel's advice, and after calling the apostles in, they flogged them and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and then released them. So they went on their way from the presence of the council, here it is, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. Peter knew what he was talking about when he wrote about suffering years later in 1 Peter. But the apostles here in the book of Acts were facing persecution for the same exact reason that Christians today are facing persecution because the fledgling church here in the book of Acts was experiencing phenomenal growth 
Literally thousands of Jews were coming to Christ um, to the point they couldn't keep track of the number of people who were converting from, converting from Judaism to, to Christianity. And we even see that in the Muslim world today that there are countless Muslims converting to Christ. In an effort to counteract this alarming spread of Christianity, the Jewish religious leaders here in the book of Acts fought back by arresting the apostles and beating them and issuing no witnessing laws. As we're going to see, they even met together with all the important leaders to discuss how to shut down the church in that city. And yet, despite their powerful attack against Christianity, the Jerusalem Christians refused to stop witnessing. And eventually, the gospel message spread through the entire region, right, to Jerusalem, to Judea and Samaria, and ultimately, eventually, to every country in the world. And so I thought it'd be good for us this morning, just with the time that we have remaining, to to consider how Peter and the rest of the apostles responded to persecution, which I think provides us a good example of how we should respond whenever we might face persecution for speaking to others about Christ. And so I've just divided this portion of God's Word up into six different points here, all starting with the letter A. But I want to give you the context of this powerful verse, verse 41, right? Rejoicing they had been, that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. What is the context in which they said that? Well, we have to go back all the way to verse 12. Acts chapter 5, verse 12, and we see, first of all, the agitation. Verse 12, at the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's portico, But none of the rest dared to associate with them. However, the people held them in high esteem. And all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women, were constantly added to their number to such an extent that they even carried the sick into the streets and laid them on cots, excuse me, in pallets, so that when Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on any of them. Also, the people from the cities in the vicinity of Jerusalem were coming together, bringing people who were sick or afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all being healed. So in these verses, Luke described the powerful surge of growth that the church experienced after the sudden deaths of Ananias and Sapphira. You remember that story at the beginning of chapter 5? These two people that had associated with the church of Jesus Christ got caught up in all the, uh, the emotion and the excitement when everyone was selling their property and bringing the money, the proceeds to the church to help support uh, the, the growing number of people they were trying to provide for, people that were really not from Jerusalem, but they had maybe come uh, into the city uh, during the Passover and they were still there and were lingering, having come to Christ. And so Ananias and Sapphira lied about the amount of money that they gave, saying, this, we gave it all. Everything we made off this property sale, we gave it all to the, to the Lord's work, and they lied, and so God struck them dead in church. And the news of God's swift judgment of these hypocritical believers traveled fast, and great fear came over not just believers, but even unbelievers. And so no one who wasn't truly committed to Christ dared join this this new hardcore movement. 
And yet even so, in the aftermath of the, the tragic discipline of, of two of its members, the church experienced amazing growth as a result of the many miracles and, and, and signs and wonders being performed by the apostles. And Luke said that many of these signs and wonders took place in Solomon's portico, which was the same spot on the east side of the outer court of the temple there in Jerusalem, where the crowds gathered uh, to hear people preach. And this is where Peter preached after the lame man was healed back in chapters 3 and 4. And we see here that the, the Holy Spirit, as we know, granted the apostles the ability to heal diseases, to cast out demons. And this was for the purpose of confirming them as God's spokesman during these foundational days in, in the life of the church. It was God's way of saying, hey, listen to these guys. These are, these are my guys. Uh, they're telling you the truth. And so this is how God set apart his, his true servants, his true mouthpieces. And, and that's really the way God has done it ever since the very beginning. At the beginning of each new era in God's work, he called attention to that by signs and wonders. You think about when he gave the law and he enabled Moses to perform signs and wonders, right? Bringing the, bringing the, the, the Israelites out of Egypt with all those, uh, uh, those plagues, those supernatural plagues. Those were signs and wonders that God enabled Moses to do. We see it in the prophets, right? The Elijah and Elisha, for example, were able to do all sorts of signs and wonders. And then we see it here in the book of Acts, in the early days of the church, that God gave Jesus, right, obviously, and the apostles uh, the ability to do these signs and wonders. But I, I think it's important that we note here, because this is something that a lot of people are confused by uh, in the church today, uh, you can drive down 45 towards Houston and see a big old billboard that invites you to come to a particular church because of the signs and wonders and miracles that will happen there. And so I think it's important that we, we realize that God never intended for signs and wonders to be an ongoing part of the church, but a unique ministry of the apostles. One of the qualifications, if you remember, of being an apostle was that you had to be a witness, an eyewitness of what? Christ's resurrection, Acts chapter 1, verse 22. And so since no one today can make that claim that they were an eyewitness of the resurrection, that there are no apostles in the church today. And so if there are no apostles, there are no signs of an apostle, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12. With the completion of the New Testament, the need for signs and wonders passed away. Warren Wearsby summarizes this point well. He said this, and I quote, this certainly does not mean that God is limited and can no longer perform miracles for his people, but it does mean that the need for confirming miracles has passed away. We now have the completed word of God, and we test teachers by their message, not by miracles. In other words, how we know whether or not someone is speaking on behalf of God is not because they can perform some miracle, it's because their message lines up with the Bible. It's consistent with the teaching of Scripture. And so I think understanding this, this unique role that the apostles served in the establishment of the early church is going to keep us from being duped by modern day faith healers who pack out churches and, and stadiums with their healing campaigns. And I don't know, when I was younger, I was kind of like the, 
um, you know, the storm chaser, and if I heard there was somebody like that coming into our town, I would go just to check it out. I just wanted to see what was going on because I had read about it, I heard about it, and I wanted to see it with my own eyes, and, and it, was, it, was just, it was just freaky. I'm just going to say that. I didn't like it. I was very uncomfortable with what was going on. One thing I've noticed, though, with these faith healers today is they don't heal everybody. Um, everyone that came to Peter and the apostles got healed. Um, Faith healers, they leave some unhealed, and if they can't heal them, they blame it on their lack of faith, right? That's why they're called faith healers. And so, again, I think it's um, an aberration of what we see in the New Testament here, and an ex- an unnecessary extension that God never intended uh, for the church today. But notice at the end here of this little section we read, it says, also the people from the cities in the vicinity of Jerusalem were coming together, bringing people who were sick or afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all being healed. So we see how the gospel was beginning to spread outside of Jerusalem. Remember Acts chapter 1-8, and you will be my witnesses both in, what, Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and to the other part of the earth. And so the gospel was to go forth like concentric circles throughout the earth. And so all that was taking place here through the apostles could hardly go unnoticed, and it it alarmed people. It, it, It agitated the Jewish religious leaders enough that they launched this aggressive attack against this rapidly expanding movement called the Church of Jesus Christ. And so we move from agitation to apprehension, verse 17. But the high priest rose up along with all his associates, that is the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with jealousy. They laid hands on the apostles and put them in a public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the gates of the prison, and taking them out, he said, go, stand and speak to the people in the temple the whole message of this life. Upon hearing this, they entered into the temple about daybreak and began to teach. So those who were in charge of the spiritual and political life of the nation of Israel, the the Sanhedrin, um, they were extremely distressed by the rapid spread of Christianity. Thousands of people were coming to Christ, and they were concerned about how it would affect the city, but I think more importantly, based on what Luke records here, that they were jealous, right? They were concerned about the exclusive role that they had played for all these years as the leaders and teachers of Israel. And so they were jealous of the, the influence of these upstart apostles, and so they apprehended them, they arrested them. And apparently, all 12 of the apostles got arrested this time. And back in chapter 3 and 4, only Peter and John got arrested. Now they all got arrested. I mean, this was like a shakedown, big time. They were, they were pulling them all in. They were getting them all off the street. And as we see here, God supernaturally released them and commanded them via an angel to go right back out and keep on preaching. And I love the way Luke describes the gospel here, the whole message of this life, capital L. Do you see that in your Bibles? 
This is the good news of the gospel that we proclaim that Jesus Christ came into the world to die so that we who are spiritually dead could have both abundant life now and eternal life in heaven. And I think what's so ironic here about this is the Sadducees. He, noticed, he mentions the sect of the Sadducees. They were the leading party of the Sanhedrin, which was like, kind of like the uh, Supreme Court, if you will, of, of, of the nation of Israel. And they didn't believe in angels or anything supernatural for that matter, including the resurrection from the dead. And so that's why they had such an issue with the apostles getting up and saying, hey, Jesus rose from the dead. They're like, yeah, right, that, that's impossible. But they didn't even believe in angels. And so how providential that God used an angel, right, to deliver the apostles from jail. Well, the same group who had opposed the ministry of Jesus and had him crucified was now dealing with his followers with the same kind of animosity, the same kind of hostility. And here we find them again conspiring together how to put an end to Christianity. Notice verse 21. Now when the high priest and his associates came, they called the council together, that's the Sanhedrin, even all the senate of the sons of Israel, and sent orders to the prison house for them to be brought. But the officers who came did not find them in the prison, and they returned and reported back, saying, we found the prison house locked quite securely, and the guards standing at the doors, but when we had opened up, we found no one inside. In other words, the disciples had walked out through the walls, and nobody knew it. The guards were still kind of standing there thinking they were still in there, and they weren't. Now, when the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them as to what would come of this, but someone came and reported to them, the men you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain, along with the officers and, uh, officers and proceeded to bring them back without violence, for they were afraid of the people that they might be stoned. So the, the highest court in Jerusalem, the Sanhedrin, came together to deliberate about what to do with these guys. But when they asked for them to be brought before them, to stand before them in this courtroom, the guards sheepishly reported that um, we can't find them. They're, they're not there. And all the guards were at their stations. All the cells were locked, but the apostles were gone. And so while they're sitting around trying to figure out what happened, how did, these, how did 12 guys just vanish into thin air? Someone comes up and reports that they were preaching in the same exact spot where they had been arrested the day before. And so they went out and recaptured them, but this time without using any force because they were afraid they might anger the people and they would get stoned. The people would stone them because the apostles were held in such high regard. One commentator said this, well, he said, this was God's way of saying for all time that no one under heaven will silence the gospel of Jesus Christ. All of history confirms the fact that the fiercest persecution has utterly failed to stop the Christian faith from spreading. 
the old saying is the blood of the martyrs is the what? The seed of the church. And so we see the apprehension. Now we see the allegation. Notice what the high priest accuses them of. Verse 27, when they had brought them, they stood them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, we gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in his name, and yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. So they'd already told him once, hey, don't talk about Jesus anymore. Quit it. Stop it. And because they wouldn't quit, notice it says that they claim that the entire city was filled with the teaching of Christ, which whether he meant to or not, that was an unintentional compliment to the effectiveness of the apostles' witness, wasn't it? The whole city is talking about Jesus now, thanks to you guys. Wouldn't that be great if that's what was said about Montgomery County? as a result of the witness of Lakeside Bible Church that everyone was talking about Jesus. Well, these men hated Jesus so much they, they wouldn't even say his name. They just said this name. And, and the main allegation that, that they were making was that the apostles were accusing them of killing the Messiah. You're bringing his blood upon us. Which again, I think is ironic because they were the ones who when Pilate washed his hands and said, I am innocent of this man's blood, what did they say? Let his blood be upon us and our children. So these guys were guilty and they knew it. They were the guilty ones, not the apostles. Notice the affirmation here in verse 29. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus whom you had put to death but hanging him by hanging him on a cross. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins and we are witnesses of these things and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. So Peter was serving as the spokesman for the apostles. We know that. Christ had appointed him as the leader of the apostles. He was the one that had preached the first sermon at, at Pentecost. And so he began, or he responded, I should say, by reaffirming the, the basic principle of civil disobedience that he'd already affirmed back in chapter 4, verse 19. Just look back a page or two in your Bibles. This is what Peter said when they told him not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. This is Acts 4.19. But Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you, may, you be the judge, for we cannot stop speaking about what you've seen and heard. <coughs> so we know that the Bible clearly teaches that Christians are to obey the laws that are laid down by the government. We recently studied this in Romans chapter 13. Verses 1 through 7, 
We're going to be studying it here shortly in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13 through 17. And so we understand that as Christians, we are to submit to the governing authorities. But when the governing authority makes laws that go against God's laws, then Christians must respectfully disobey and suffer the consequences. John Stott, one of my favorite commentators, says it this way, Christians are called to be conscientious citizens and to submit to human authorities, but if the authority concerned misuses its God-given power to command what he forbids or forbid what he commands then the Christian's duty is to disobey the human authority in order to obey God's. And so Peter was affirming that they were going to keep right on doing what they were doing, which is to disobey the authorities who had usurped their God-given authority by forbidding them to do something that God had commanded them to do, which was to preach Christ. Peter also went on to affirm what he'd already said a number of times before, that these men had killed Jesus. But God had raised him from the dead and exalted him to his right hand to prove that he was the Messiah through whom their sins could be forgiven if they were willing to repent. This was the gospel that Peter just kept preaching to the, the, the Jewish religious leaders. But sadly, rather than repenting, they responded in rage and had every intention of killing them just like they had killed Jesus. And they may have gone through that, gone through with that if it weren't for the, the providential intervention of Gamaliel. Notice verse 33, this is the arbitration. But when they heard this, they were cut to the quick and intended to kill them. Again, that same unrighteous rage that led to the crucifixion of Christ was there again wanting to crucify or stone these apostles, Christ's apostles. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, respected by all the people, stood up in the council and gave orders to put the men outside for a short time. And he said to them, men of Israel, take care what you propose to do with these men. For some time ago, Theudas rose up claiming to be somebody, and a group of about 400 men joined up with him, but he was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After this man, Judas of Galilee, rose up in the days of the census and drew away some people after him. He too perished, and all those who followed him were scattered. So, in this present case, I say to you, stay away from these men and let them alone, for if this plan or action is of men, it will be overthrown. But, if it is of God you'll not be able to overthrow them or else you may even be found fighting against God. I don't know where Gamaliel is right now, but it um, seemed like he was sympathetic there to what was happening through Christ and his apostles. Gamaliel was the most distinguished, highly respected rabbi in Israel in that day. Uh, he was best known as the mentor of the apostle Paul. He was a Pharisee, which was, uh, which was the minority party in the Sanhedrin. Uh, they held a more moderate position than the Sadducees. But he was used by God here to influence 
the Sanhedrin not to oppose the apostles in light of God's sovereign control over the rise and fall of messianic movements. And he referenced two revolutionaries, Theudas and Judas, who were both killed along with their followers, which put an end to their movement. And so he says, hey man, the best thing to do is just, just leave these guys alone and wait to see what becomes of their movement. Because if it's of human origin, hey, we know what happens to those. They, they just die out. But if this is from God, you'll never be able to stop them no matter how hard you fight against them. And so God used Gamaliel at this time, I'm assuming an unbeliever, to diffuse what was a very explosive situation and to rescue the apostles from being killed. And so instead of delivering the apostles up to the, to the Romans to be crucified like they had done with Jesus, they had them beaten within an inch of their lives. Notice verse 40, they took his advice and after calling the apostles in, they flogged them and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and then release them. This was likely the 39 lashes, in other words, one shy of killing you. 40 lashes was, the, was the, the, the limit, the legal limit, according to Deuteronomy chapter 25. And so they beat him up real good, and then they ordered them again to never mention the name of Jesus. We don't want to hear the name of Jesus come out of your mouth ever again. Let this be a warning to you. The next time, we're not going to let you off this easy. And then I love verses 41 and 42. I've just chosen to call this the animation. Notice that in spite of the brutal beating, the apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing. What? <laughs> Verse 41, so they went on their way from the presence of the council, rubbing their backs, going, oh, that hurts so bad. Man, what are we doing? Why are we, man, this is not worth it. No, they left rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. Even though their bloody backs were just ripped to shreds, they, were, they, they considered it a great joy, even an honor, that God would consider them worthy to suffer shame for the name of Christ. They were happy. They were responding exactly the way Jesus had taught them to respond to persecution in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verse 10. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets, because in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I like how Luke recorded it in Luke chapter 6, that same account, or perhaps maybe uh, another sermon on the plain. Um, Luke chapter 6, verse 22, blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you and insult you and scorn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. Be glad in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for in the same way their fathers used to treat the prophets. 
So they consider themselves blessed to be able to endure the same kind of beating that Christ endured for them. And to bear some of the same scars on their body that he had bore on his for them. Paul said in Galatians 6.17, I bear on my body the brand marks of Jesus. In fact, Paul said in Colossians 1.24, I rejoice in my sufferings. Um, It's an honor to fill up what was lacking in the sufferings of Christ. Not that his substitutionary atonement or suffering on the cross wasn't enough, but the people were still persecuting Jesus, but he was gone. They couldn't attack him anymore, so they just aimed their guns at at the apostles, the followers of Christ. The point here is that neither the beatings or the threats stopped them from witnessing for Jesus Christ. Rather than discourage them or cause them to go into hiding, it energized them, it exhilarated them to even be more persistent in preaching the gospel. And so once again, as it always has and always will, the persecution backfired on the Sanhedrin, ultimately on Satan. Because every, every lash of the whip simply served to strengthen and embolden the apostles to be even more faithful witnesses of Christ. It's like, it was just like pouring, you know, they were trying to pour water. They thought they had, a, a, they thought they had water in the jug that they were going to douse on the flame, and little did they know there was gas in it. And it just exploded. Notice verse 42, and every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ, unfazed by any of this stuff. And the fact that it was every day, I mean, this was the, this was the apostles' passion. They were constantly looking for opportunities to, to, to uh, share Christ with others, wherever and whenever. And so guess what? It, 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 it happened on a daily basis. Why? Because they were looking for it. And again, we've talked about this, getting into the habit of waking up every morning and thinking about and praying, Lord, would you give me an opportunity to, to share Christ with someone today? That's a game-changing prayer. You start praying that prayer faithfully every morning, I guarantee you, you're going to have opportunities come up on a daily basis. That's a prayer that God will answer. And maybe what's the problem is we don't have our radar up for the opportunities. We, we miss the opportunities or, sadly, we shy away from, respons- from the opportunities, don't we? Which should be unthinkable when we consider the zeal and the boldness of the apostles and also the persecuted Christians around the world who face persecution all the time for sharing the gospel. And hardly any of us, if any of us, have ever or ever will be told not to talk about Jesus or have a finger laid on us for sharing the gospel with someone. And yet we are not near as faithful in our witness to Christ as we should be 
Nothing could stop the apostles from telling others about Christ. The question for us is what's going to get us to start telling others about Jesus Christ? And so we can learn a lot from not only the apostles, but from our modern day brothers and sisters in Christ around the world, can we? Hopefully you're inspired, you're you're moved today as we consider these things. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for how you and your wisdom design persecution to work, that it really is the catalyst for the church worldwide. And there's a reason why Christianity has reached the nations, because it's persecution, just continue to drive people further out and away, and with, with them they brought the gospel. And Lord, we're, we're, we're here today as a product of persecution on some level. And so, Lord, we want to be mindful of this in our own lives, but Lord, we also want to remember and never forget that no matter what we're going through in our comfortable little world here in America and here in Montgomery County, and Lord, there's our brothers and sisters in Christ are, are going through it. And that we would remember to pray for them and uh, reach out to them in practical ways to serve them well. And uh, Lord, that they would, you would use them to inspire us and embolden us to be faithful witnesses for Christ here and now. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.